0: Dr. David Satcher, former Surgeon General of the United States, called it a silent epidemic. Who knows what evil lurks in the mouths of men? The shadow knows, and so does our guest for this program. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mark Cannon. Dr. Cannon is a clinical associate professor of pediatric dentistry at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. He is a past president of the Illinois Society of Dentistry for Children. Dr. Cannon is the author of over 50 scientific papers, lectures nationally and internationally, and in his spare time maintains an active dental practice in Long Grove, Illinois. Today we are discussing the silent epidemic, early childhood caries. Hi, Dr. Cannon. Thanks for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you so much, Dr. Rudenberg, for having me. As a pediatrician, I've heard a lot about early childhood
1: caries. How is that defined, and how common is the problem? The problem is very common, and it is truly the silent epidemic. Children under the age of four, when they come into the dental office with caries, they are determined to have early childhood caries. The definition of severe early childhood caries is the presence of more than four carious lesions in these young children. How does such a big problem go unnoticed? Doesn't it get your goat? It really does because most of it is preventable. Studies done in countries such as Mexico have demonstrated that over 40% of these lesions were because of developmental defects in the enamel that if the child had been seen by age one, we could use preventive measures to prevent these teeth from decaying. We can actually remineralize teeth with the appropriate measures. Another example of this is that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry have recommended that children have their first checkup by age one. If we actually did see all these children by age one, we could significantly reduce this problem. You
0: mentioned the experience from Mexico. In the United States, I've seen numbers as many as 41% of children aged 2 to 11 have dental caries in their primary teeth. I understand you've done a lot of international work. You've been to Brazil and Bosnia. The problem there must be unbelievably
1: extensive. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what you've learned from those experiences? The rate of decay is often based on the socioeconomic group. Children who live under the poverty level in the United States have a curious experience of two to three times that of the normal population. There's many reasons for this. One would simply be dietary. Sometimes they're forced to utilize a diet heavier in carbohydrates. The second reason is just simply access to care because they do not see dental professionals on a regular basis they're more prone to have the caries not only grow within the tooth but expand throughout the entire dentition so yes there are cultural differences yes there are genetic differences it varies for the population the population makeup and of course the availability of dental professionals
0: our audience is medical professionals could you explain a little bit further? You mentioned dietary factors as a cause of the tooth decay. How does the process snowball? It starts out, obviously, not only with poor nutrition, but I imagine there's an excess of sugar in these children. I know there's some differences in the effects of different types of sugars, but what's the basic process, and are there bacteria involved?
1: Absolutely. In fact, the vast majority, as you know, of bacteria that children have come from the mother, roughly 80%, 85%. You
0: mean mommy dearest?
1: Mommy dearest, <laughs> They can also get bacteria from their siblings because they share toys. They may chew on the toys and so forth. That's why you find studies definitely proving that you have higher caries rates in families and that the siblings are more prone to decay also, not just from the genetic standpoint but from, of course, the bacterial standpoint. All this is interrelated, however. If you go back to prenatal care and all the... Scandinavian countries, for example, Finland is famous for this. When women are pregnant, they are instructed to chew xylitol gum because it changes the bacterial flora in the mouth of the mother. So when the child is born, they have far fewer cavity-producing bacteria. The bacteria are far less cariogenic, they're far less pathogenic, and the child basically has a healthier environment. Now, when the teeth come in, If the child has developmental defects of enamel, which is genetic, definitely genetic, and it's been demonstrated in many studies, the genetic transmission of these defects, those types of defective areas, they're wonderful reservoirs for this pathogenic bacteria. It's making a niche for it, a biological niche, where they can greatly expand in population. What species is primarily involved? Well, streptococci mutants is the one you always hear about mostly, it is indeed transmitted from the mother to the child and can be from the child to other siblings. We have products to help reduce this. We mentioned xylitol. Xylitol is wonderful for weeding out this pathogenic weed from our bacterial flora. Um, Other things, we have a product that's called MI Paste, and that stands for minimum intervention paste. And we highly recommend that the pediatricians prescribe this for young children. There's two MI Paste, but the first and the original one has no fluoride in it, so you don't have to worry about fluorosis. Could you tell our audience what the MI stands for? Minimum intervention paste, and it has a form of amorphous calcium phosphate, This amorphous calcium phosphate is bioavailable, and it can be absorbed directly by the enamel of the teeth. Also, it has casein phosphopeptide in it, and casein phosphopeptide helps prevent the colonization of the strep mutants to the teeth.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Mark Cannon. We are discussing The Silent Epidemic early childhood carries The minimal intervention paste, is this available for the pharmacist? You mentioned this is something pediatricians should prescribe.
1: The dose, how often... We typically prescribe it just to be applied nightly by the parent after toothbrushing and flossing. The ideal situation would be to allow it to be undisturbed for three to four hours in the mouth after a topical application. Again, you don't have to really worry about the child swallowing the paste. It does have some artificial sweeteners, xylitol and sorbitol in it, and that helps also eliminate the strep mutants. So you have a lot of benefits of this rather innocuous paste. Now, there's a second form of it, which has fluoride added, and that should only be utilizing older children.
0: Older children, what about if they live in an area where there's fluoridated water? Is it still okay to use the fluoridated product?
1: Yeah, after age eight, you don't really have to worry that much about the fluorosis. It's a very minimal amount. It's about 850 uh, parts per million fluoride. So it's not an extensive amount. We actually did research on this in Brazil, and we were using one with less fluoride. All this got started, too. I was asked to go to Brazil to teach, and I spent uh, two weeks lecturing in Brazil and working with a number of graduate students. We started a number of studies, which I think is the best way to spread humanitarian aid. I agree. Tell me about the humanitarian work you've done. Well, I've been to several countries doing humanitarian work, and I love to set up programs where it continues after I return. When I went to Brazil, I had contacted a number of dental manufacturers and asked for funds and supplies, which they very willingly donated. And when I got to Brazil, we set up all these variety of studies. We went through all the course of human subject review committees, and we made sure everything was correct. And in these studies, the graduate students who were Ph.D. students went out into the barrios and found children who were in desperate need of care, in severe pain, terrible infections, brought them in, provided all this free care supported by the manufacturers, and continued this for years. And I'd like to see more programs like this established. I think they really benefit everybody. They benefit educational community, they benefit research, and they benefit the children who need the care the most.
0: Going back to the MI paste, I imagine that would be something very practical to use in other countries that don't perhaps have fluoridated water and the access to care that many Americans do.
1: Yeah. In fact, it was really developed mainly in Australia. The Australians are very big on this. it was in Australia for about 10 years before it came to the United States. The FDA delayed the release in the United States. (laughs) I was
0: just going to ask about
1: FDA (laughs) approval. And it's because of the casing phosphopeptide. They wanted to see if there was any severe allergic reactions to the casing. And it went 10 years in Australia without one reported reaction. Does that mean children that are milk allergic should not use this product? They should not use it. Is there an alternative to... This product for children who are milk allergic—they can't drink milk either. But I guess the soy product's helpful. No, basically we go back to the old standby of a stannous fluoride home treatment. There is a number of stannous fluoride home treatments that are actually quite successful, and they have to be applied very carefully because a parent cannot allow the child to swallow it. So it's applied, and the excess is removed with like a washcloth or gauze or a towel. From a practical standpoint. What should the pediatrician
0: be looking for as he examines the children? Children certainly make many visits to the pediatrician the first two years of life. What are the clues to dental disease? And again, as a pediatrician,
1: what do I need to look for? Well, the developmental defects of enamel give you many clues, not just for dentistry, but there's been studies going all the way back to 1936 by like Masler in 1936 showing the relationship between dental defects and other systemic disorders throughout the 80s and 90s they were showing that dental defects can clue you as to the overall systemic health of the patient are there other signs
0: such as white spots on the teeth plaque buildup i heard somebody use the term chalky deposits along the gum line
1: are there clues there that are just so obvious that the pediatrician shouldn't miss them. Yes, I hate to say it, there's clues there that you cannot believe. But we shouldn't pick on pediatricians because dentists miss these clues too. Let's go back to the very beginning on this. Yeah, go ahead, please. Because they've done studies on prehistoric recovered skulls and teeth. No, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's and they great. have shown that the death rate was much higher in people with developmental defects. These developmental defects often mean something bad happened during early childhood years. Now, let's look at all the stuff that's been done like on coronary disease or cardiac ischemic disease. 80% of those kids have developmental defects. Kids with cerebral palsy, 40 to 50% have developmental defects. Cleft palate, over 30 to 40% depending on which study. As a rule, developmental defects when you look in the mouth, something has happened. Now secondly we do have the genetic component northern european descent people have a 20 to 30% rate of developmental defects because of genetic issues so you have the environmental insult which gives you a clue that something is wrong look at prematurity prematurity again 50 60% of children who are prematurely born have enamel defects of the incisors so all those children they should be on mipa starting at what age they should see their pediatric dentist at age one and get started. Mark,
0: I'd like to thank you very much for being my guest today and sharing your thoughts on the causes and prevention of the silent epidemic early childhood carries. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening.
1: I wish you good day and good health.